Hello, and welcome to The Thrilling Adventures of Superman, a podcast where Superman still stands for truth, justice, and the American way. This is episode 43, and my name is Michael Bradley. This episode, we are sticking in the world of newspapers for a look at the third storyline from the Sunday newspaper strip. But first, I have got a stack of mail and feedback to go through. I've been a bit lax on reading these lately, and I really do apologize. I appreciate when people take the time to send feedback to the show, so I'm sorry that I've fallen so much behind. Thankfully, the story we're looking at this episode is fairly short, so it will let me just knock all these out at once. Times like this, I sometimes wish I had a snazzy name for the segment, like, you know, Metropolis Mailbag or JLA Mailroom. Unfortunately, though, Golden Age DC Comics didn't have letter columns. In fact, they won't have uh, letter columns as a regular feature across the line until the 1960s. The Superman books actually get them a little earlier. Here's a nice little bit of trivia for you, for you trivia buffs out there. The first true letters column feature in a DC book, from what I've been able to track down, was in Superman number 124 from 1958. I'm told that Mort Weisinger and Julie Schwartz started running reader letters in books that they edited because they finally remembered the practice from the old science fiction pulps and fanzines. Other editors of the company at the time weren't quite as hip to the idea, so it took their books a little longer to start running them. But anyway, as far as this show goes, first up is another iTunes review. This one comes from Steve Rogers, who's written into the show a few times. And Steve wrote, Michael Bradley does a great job of going story by story of Superman's earliest adventures. And he gave the show five stars. And thank you, Steve. That actually makes six iTunes reviews so far, which is a good start, and I'm happy to have them. But I'd like to see a lot more. Um, I know there's a lot more listeners out there using iTunes to download the show, so I'm going to throw out a challenge. I really want to see those iTunes reviews hit double digits by the end of the year, so come on folks, you've been challenged. Next up is a bit of feedback from the website. Um, I guess I don't specifically mention it every episode, but you guys can leave comments on the website too. You just have to click on a particular episode's posting and then scroll down to the bottom. Uh, At the very bottom of the show notes, there's a little form where you can type a response. But this one comes from my pal Michael Kaiser, who responded to the post I made for episode 39. As that was the first episode from the radio show, I obviously couldn't post any panels or scans from the story, but I did post some other things that related to the episode, including a picture of Bob Hope. Now, just how does Bob Hope relate to the Superman radio show? Well, you'll have to go to the website to find out. But the picture showed Bob Hope in a baseball, a Cleveland Indians baseball uniform, shaking hands with Kirk Allen, who was dressed as Superman. And Mike wrote, Okay, that handshaking picture is all kinds of awesome. Kirk Allen's Superman shaking hands with Bob Hope, who's dressed in a baseball uniform, must know more. Well, much like Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster, Bob Hope spent a significant amount of time of his boyhood years living in Cleveland. And as he got older, he became a minority owner in the Indians uh, sometime in the mid-40s. So that explains the Indians' uniform. As for his meeting with Superman, 
Apparently, there was some sort of charity baseball game staged in the late 40s, uh, probably around 1949, give or take a year. As a gag during the game, Kirk Allen was to come in and pinch hit as Superman. And the story goes that they rigged the baseball to explode when Allen hit it because, you know, a guy with super strength could do that. Apparently, though, um, <laughs> apparently Allen had a little trouble hitting the ball, though, and ended up striking out. So the pitcher just kept throwing pitches until he eventually got a hit. I don't know too much else, including if the game was actually in Cleveland and Hope had a hand in arranging it, or if he was just invited because he was a celebrity and then wore the Indians uniform because he owned the team. But either way, that's the story behind the photo as I know it. And next up is an email from John Wilson. As you guys know, John hosts the Golden Age Superman and Amazing Spider-Man Classics podcasts. And he wrote this in response to episode 37, where Billy Hogan and I discussed Superman number 4. The subject is Superman 4 and Action Comics 23. And John wrote, Hey there, Michael. I don't write often because usually I've already said what I'm going to say about these stories on my own podcast. However, I thought I'd make an exception here for reasons I'll explain in a minute. When covering the February 1940 Superman stories with Michael Bailey, we decided to do Action Comics number 23 before Superman 4 because the stories occur in that order, even though the books didn't hit stands quite that way. I said on those episodes that I figured there was simply a discrepancy in the monthly and quarterly publishing schedules that the creators either weren't prepared for or were completely unaware of. Perhaps the fact that the books were coming from two distinct publishing arms, Detective Comics Inc. for Action Comics and Superman Inc. for Superman, had something to do with it. I don't know. Well, what I didn't say then, but have learned since, and offer to you now for your own mental historical database, is that the exact same thing happened over at Timely the next year. Submariner 1 featured a change in Namor's status quo, his father's death and his assumption to the throne. But that change was not reflected in that month's issue of Marvel Mystery Comics a couple weeks later. It wouldn't be until Marvel Mystery Comics 20 the next month that the story of Submariner 1 would be continued. My thinking is that the creators produced stories in an order they thought would be reflective of publishing order, but they were proven incorrect. See you at the next Superman Podcast Network meeting, and don't forget to bring a dessert this time. John M. Wilson, sent from my iPad. Oh, I guess I wasn't supposed to read that last part. Anyway, okay, first of all, <laughs> I clearly remember being told to bring a side dish last time the Podcast Network gang got together. So it's hardly my fault that plans changed and everyone else showed up with pot with side dishes too. Besides, I really think the asparagus casserole was a big hit. Or at least it would have been had a certain someone who shall remain nameless, but whose name rhymes with Juan Jilson, hadn't went around telling everyone that it was kryptonite casserole. <laughs> but anyway, in all seriousness, uh, thanks for the email, John. And yeah, I have no idea what the deal was with that either. I, I don't think it's a matter of publishing arms, necessarily, because despite the name they stuck on it, it's all the same offices and the same people doing the work, you know? It could have been an issue with the different publishing frequencies, like you said. Or it could be um, Superman number 4 was the first issue of that title since Whitney Ellsworth came back. And while I don't have confirmation, my guess is that it was his decision to change the book's format to printing new material rather than recycling old. 
So, given that Superman number 4 was the first issue to do that, that might have been a sudden decision, or at least a surprise, to Siegel and Schuster and, and the other artists. And since they'd already started the Europe at War story in Action Comics number 22, they had to continue that in 23. But, like you said, there's a similar problem with the Namor stories, which I actually didn't know until you pointed it out, so thank you for that little bit of trivia. And there's also at least one other instance of that kind of weirdness coming down the road for Superman when Perry White is brought into the comics. White first shows up in in the comics in Superman number 7, which, according to Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics, was released in early September of 1940. But then two weeks later, when that month's issue of Action Comics is released, which, if I'm remembering right, is issue number 30, I think, we have George Taylor, once again, as the editor. So, I I really don't know. I mean, it could have been art-related, too. Maybe the art for one story wasn't done when it needed to be, so they went with one that was. Um... A couple of those early Batman stories were printed out of order, too, for various reasons, so I, I just don't know. But, yeah, you're, you're probably right in that they tried to do the stories in the order they thought they'd be published, and it just didn't quite turn out that way. Um, our next email, also in response to episode 37, comes from some guy named Charlie Niemeyer. And that name sounds strangely familiar. I having trouble placing it, but maybe if he comes on the show someday, I'll, I'll be able to figure out who he is. Uh, Charlie wrote, Enjoyed the latest episode. Nice to hear Billy on someone else's show for a change. The guy's been doing this longer than most of us, but his schedule has been keeping him from being on anyone else's show. Plus, Superman basically became kingpin of the city decades before Daredevil did it. Once again, Superman is the pioneer. <laughs> Thank you, Charlie. Yes, it was great having uh, Billy Hogan on the show, Like I said when he was here, I really enjoy Billy's Superman fan podcast, and he has been doing it longer than most of us. Um, I know how much work it's been to get 42 episodes out, and Billy's tirelessly done five times that many. And unlike this show, where I've basically got my episode topics lined out for me from the publishing order, for Billy's first 160 episodes or so, you know, they were a different subject each week. And that's even more work to have to come up with a a different subject and research it. So, yeah, major credit to Billy for his tireless work and Superman podcasting. Uh, It was definitely great to have him on the show, and I hope he can come back at some point. The last email before we close up the mailbag for this episode comes from Steve Marshall. And the subject is Action Comics 1 and 2. And Steve wrote... Dear Mr. Bradley, I just found your site recently and just finished listening to your first two programs. You brought up some questions about the plot of the second Superman story involving the war in South America. The readers of 1938 would have understood this story. The context was that at the end of World War I, the war to get all wars, the public was disillusioned by the failure of the war to end the problems everyone was told it would, especially the failure of Wilson's Peace Without Victory. Americans were beginning to feel that the war was fought for other reasons. Hearings were held in Congress during the late 20s and early 30s. The result of these hearings was to highlight that, that big surprise, arms manufacturers made a huge profit during World War I. Polls around the time showed that a large number of Americans thought that arms makers started World War I just to make a bundle of money. 
Another result of this World War I disillusionment was an, in, was an increase in the isolationist feeling. America needed to keep out of European affairs, and the only people who wanted an involvement with Europe did so for only dishonest motives, like to sell weapons. Disarmament conventions were the rage during this time, during the 30s. Clark Kent slash Superman went to Washington to find out who was behind the war, excuse me, who was behind the war moves in both South America and Europe, and the answer was corrupt lobbyists and lawmakers funded by arms manufacturers. Second, it would not have been hard for Americans, or any other nationality, to enlist in this South American army during this time. For example, Americans joined the British and Canadian armed forces during the opening years of World War II, before USA joined the fight. Joe Kennedy, excuse me, Joe Kennedy, JFK's brother, was killed while flying for the RAF in 1940. Americans joined both sides in the Spanish Civil War being fought at that time. And don't forget the French Foreign Legion that accepts any nationality and you didn't have to give your real name. The French Foreign Legion was in popular culture at the time in 1936 because there was a remake of Beau Geste, which the hero joins the FFL. The fact is the battle would have followed along the trench lines where opposite sides would have faced each other. I really like your show and will listen to the third episode tomorrow. Maybe another listener brought up some of my points in a show I haven't listened to yet. Have a great day, Steve, Superman fan and historian. First of all, Steve, I'm glad to know that new people are finding the show and enjoying it. <laughs> those, uh, those early episodes are kind of rough, but thankfully I've gotten at least a little better since then. Well, at least the mic's better anyway. I don't, I don't know about me. But thank you for the email. And that actually does clear up some of the problems and questions I had with the story. You know, the, the comics history stuff, um, I, I consider myself well-versed in, but the real-world history is quite often a blind spot for me. Um, I try to research some of it and, and look into it more, but it's just not always that easy when, when you go past the, uh, the fixed dates and places and happenings. So... I, yeah, I do thank you, and, and I appreciate knowing a bit more about the real-world context of the story, and it really does enhance the story and, and clear things up for me. I'm actually kicking myself a little bit, though, concerning Americans joining militias in other countries, like the French Foreign Legion or the Royal Royal Air Force. Looking back, it should have been obvious, and I actually feel a little bit dumb for not catching on to that, so thanks for bringing me to task on it. Still, I'm glad you're enjoying the show, and I really hope to hear from you again if you're able to put you know, other stories into a better historical context. Like I said, I admit that's just the part where I struggle in, especially with these early stories. I think it will be a, less of a problem as we keep moving forward, and Superman gradually moves away from that social crusader. But still, I, I hope no one hesitates to write in if they can shed more light on things. So, thanks again, Steve, for the email. And also thanks once more to Charlie and John and Michael and Steve Rogers for their comments as well. I hope to hear from more folks out there because I really do love hearing from listeners. So if anyone else has any questions or comments or if they can you know, shed some light on a story that we've covered, just drop me an email to thrillingadventures at greatcrypton.com or feel free to post a comment at the website or just hit me up on Facebook or Twitter. My name is Michael Bailey. And I am Jeffrey Taylor. 
and we host a podcast called From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast. Presented by the Superman homepage. On the show... Wait, wait, wait. What? This just isn't working out for me. It's not bombastic enough. We need something epic. Like what? Welcome to From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast, presented by the Superman homepage. I am Jeffrey Taylor. And I am Michael Bailey. From Crisis to Crisis chronicles the adventures of Superman wait, wait, from... Wait, 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 wait. I'm just not feeling this. I'm just wondering how there's a needle-scratching sound when all of this is clearly digital. Look, all we need to say is that this is the, a trailer for a show called From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast presented by the home, Superman homepage. My name is Michael Bailey. I am Jeffrey Taylor. And every week we give in-depth synopsis and reviews for just about every Superman book published between Man of Steel number 1 in 1986 and Adventures of Superman number 649 in 2006. We also talk about the related Superman media, what was happening in the rest of the world when these comics were published and what else was going on in the DC Universe. The show drops every Thursday-ish at the Superman homepage, which is located at www.supermanhomepage.com. From Crisis to Crisis is also a proud member of the Superman Podcast Network, located at www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com. So join Jeffrey and I each week as we explore Superman during the post-crisis era, which includes Exile, Panic in the Sky, Doomsday, The Marriage, and Beyond. And write into the show at FromCrisisToCrisis at gmail.com and hear it read on the air, eventually, because we get behind on that sort of thing. Superman created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. Side effects from From Crisis to Crisis include loss of money from buying back issues, a desire to read 20-year-old comic books, nausea, drowsiness, pizza, blurred vision, upset stomach, a desire to kick puppies and kittens, and backache from lifting boxes of Superman comics. If the excitement of From Crisis to Crisis lasts more than four hours, seek immediate medical attention. The third story from the Sunday continuity of the Superman newspaper strip was only four strips long. Surprisingly, this isn't the shortest storyline we're going to get in the Sundays, but it will be the shortest we get until, well, really until the mid to late 1943. Um, there's one in 1942 that's only two strips, but I'm not really sure that could even be called a story. But either way, it will be the shortest Sunday storyline we're going to get and really the shortest uh, from the newspaper's period for quite a while as far as the show is concerned. And it's weird because the next storyline from the Sunday Strip is 12 parts, followed by an 8-parter and then a 13. So the Sundays are really varied in the story lengths. And unfortunately, since the next one is 12 parts, it's going to be quite a while before we revisit the Sunday Strips. But anyway... This particular storyline, like I said, is four strips. It was strips 15 through 18 of the serial and ran February 11th to March 3rd, 1940. Oddly enough, due to the way the dates fell, pretty much everything we've covered in recent episodes was coming out at that time. Both Superman number 4 and Action Comics number 23 were published. The Daily Strip wrapped up the Superman at War trilogy 
uh, just as this storyline ended. And likewise, the radio show the radio show debuted, and the first two stories of that were broadcast. So it's kind of a strange coincidence how everything is coming to an end at the same time. And my guess is we probably won't see too much more of that going down the road. Um, in the future, I think things will be much more staggered. But this story was written by Jerry Siegel and penciled and inked only by Paul Loretta, according to credits at both the Grand Comics Database and Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics. I think there's some Wayne Boring in the last couple strips, but I couldn't find confirmation of that anywhere. Our title is Giants of Doom Valley, and we begin in the offices of the Daily Planet, where Clark Kent is assigned to interview archaeologist John Carrington, uh, who has just returned from his latest expedition to Doom Valley. Clark interviews Carrington, but while showing off the giant skeleton he found, the scientist temporarily faints. As he recovers, he explains that he's weak from the wounds he sustained while battling a giant vulture on his latest trip. Apparently, the vulture attack forced Carrington to cut his trip short because he laments, saying that he'd love to go back and do some more exploration, but simply doesn't have the funds. Back at the planet, Clark engages his boss to convince him the paper should fund Carrington's trip so that they would get the exclusive scoop on any finds that he might make. Taylor at first dismisses the idea... Well, I assume it's Taylor. I, I've been saying Taylor quite frequently when they show Clark and Lois's boss, even though they rarely call him that. He was named. Um, I pointed that out when it came up in the Daily Strip, and the name has been used a couple times in the comics as well. But it just isn't something that, that gets used very often, which is another reason, really, I think that no one blinked when Perry White showed up in the radio show. But um, anyway... Taylor at first dismisses the idea, but is soon persuaded and assigns Clark and Lois Lane to go with Carrington and send back reports. Clark tells Taylor that he wants to leave Lois at home because, quote, she's likely to be more of a nuisance than a help. But after calling Clark a chauvinist jerk, something I've got to say at least he deserved in this instance, the two join up with Carrington. Later, as they check into their hotel in Doom Valley, they're given a warning by the desk clerk. But Clark says that they'll take their chances, and the three retire to their rooms. That night, as Lois sleeps, a giant hand slips into her window and snatches her from her bed. Hearing her screams, Clark and Carrington bust into Lois's room, but they're too late, and they only find Lois gone. Shortly later, we find Superman racing through the desert on his way to find the girl reporter. Lois, in danger, but wherever she is, I'll find her. And the next trip begins, and it's for some reason just inexplicably daytime. So that was either a mistake on the colorist's part, or Superman spent the whole night looking for her. But in any, in any event, after finding a giant footprint in a torn piece of Lois's nightgown, Superman comes across a... well, a something. I really have no idea uh, what this is supposed to be. It looks like a cross between an ice machine and an old campy B-movie serial rocket ship, only it's about 12 feet tall. And what happens next, it, it just confuses matters more, because we see a giant club-wielding man, who's wearing shorts and a wife-beater, climb out of the contraption, even though, from the art, there's absolutely no way he would fit inside. I'm going to scan this panel for the show notes, and maybe one of you can explain it. 
It really has nothing to do with the story, other than that's where Captain Caveman here pops out of. And and really, couldn't he have come from something else? But anyway, I'll put this uh, I'll put this particular panel in the show notes at greatcrypton.com. So check it out and let me know your thoughts. It's kind of peculiar, and I'm just <laughs> I'm just really curious what it's meant to be. Uh, so anyway, Captain Caveman pops out of the contraption, but Superman grabs him hoists him above his head, and gives him a baseball-style toss. As the giant lands, Superman notices the giant is bleeding rather severely. Superman notes the blood, saying that he barely touched him. And I might disagree with that, given that Superman just threw this guy like a baseball. But before Superman can ponder it more, a giant vulture swoops in and picks up the giant and flies off. Superman gives chase and follows the creature back to a hidden cavern, which Superman surmises must be the same cavern where Carrington found the giant skeleton. Sneaking into the cavern, Superman passes huge skeletons, like that that Carrington brought back, and he follows the tunnel until reaching a looming underground city. However, before he can look around, he hears screams and breaks off in a run, busting through the wall of one of the buildings to find... Carrington about to be experimented on by a group of giant men. Superman launches into, the, into an attack and easily takes out the giants. Releasing Carrington from his bonds, the explorer says that he was abducted from the hotel and goes on to explain that the giants are hemophiliacs and they kidnap people in order to use their blood to replenish their own. Noteworthy in this scene is that Carrington doesn't know who Superman is. Superman just blows off his question though and it's never addressed again. But it's interesting that Carrington doesn't know who he is, and likewise isn't that much at all surprised or afraid of the guy who just crashed through a brick wall and beat up a bunch of giants. (laughs) But anyway, Superman confronts one of the giants about Lois's whereabouts, and soon he and Carrington are being led down a, a winding tunnel. The two men soon find themselves in a trap, though, as more giants begin throwing an avalanche of boulders down from the the high cliffs. Superman flexes, shattering each boulder into dust as it falls. As Carrington watches on in amazement, Superman then pushes in the side of the cliff, revealing yet another hidden cavern, this one containing Lois, chained to a wall and about to be attacked by a flock of giant vultures. And just in case the art isn't clear, Superman's there in a pinch, exclaiming, Lois! Attacked by giant vultures! And with that helpful bit of dialogue out of the way, Superman sets about saving the girl reporter, easily doing away with the giant birds with a couple of well-thrown rocks. With the menace gone, Superman snaps the chains that bind the girl reporter, but is suddenly surprised by an attack from the giants, who fire a gas gun at Superman, knocking him unconscious. We soon find our hero bound by steel cables and being lowered down into a deep pit. The fumes and the heat from the pit revive Superman, and he easily snaps his bonds and leaps out of the pit towards one of his captives. But the giant man retaliates, firing a flame gun at the Man of Steel. Engulfed in flame, Superman pulls what, to me, is a, an iconic Superman trick by whirling like a top and extinguishing the fire. It's a very awesome stunt, and cooler in my opinion, than seeing Superman simply charge through the flames like we've seen him do before, even though that's pretty cool as well. So, then Superman knocks the flame gun from the giant's hand, 
grabs Lois and Carrington, and leaps from the cavern just as the entire thing collapses. And yes, kills all the giant men that were inside. Superman deposits Lois and Carrington then safely in the desert, and then, apparently just leaving the pair to find their own way home, leaps off. Much later, back at the hotel, Carrington and Lois share their story with a skeptical Clark, and Carrington laments that he wasn't able to study the civilization more. You know, this story was bizarre, strange, and it even felt a little out of place, but I really enjoyed it. And I think it's because it's different than anything we've seen so far is why I enjoyed it so much. We're left with a number of questions here. I mean, I don't know what that contraption in the desert was. We don't know how these giant men came to be. We don't know how it is that they possess flame guns and and gas guns and the means to do blood transfusions when they don't seem all too technologically advanced. But it was just a fun story. It was a little... It was a little random, sure, but these random side trips are almost a staple of of early Superman. Um, you know, I'm talking about these stories that break from the typical setup of Superman stopping criminals in Metropolis. Um, the comics, all the way through the Silver Age, really, uh, the radio show and the Fleischer cartoons, and, and even, to a certain extent, the adventures of Superman with George Reeves, all take, or will take these occasional random side trips. And it's kind of funny that those are seen so much more frequently in this era that is often stereotyped as having the same cliched stories over and over. But while they're not all necessarily good, they do help break up the routine, and they're nice little adventures that give the writers a chance to pit Superman against other types of foes. And I think that's why I like this one, and why its peculiarities just don't bother me that much. It's just a great, short, random story that's very different than what we've seen. And I thought it was interesting that Siegel specifically said that the giants were hemophiliacs. I did a little research, and it seems that it wasn't until the 1920s that doctors began specifically looking into the cause of hemophilia and trying to find a cure. According to the National Hemophilia Foundation at hemophilia.org, in 1937, doctors at Harvard University found that they could correct the clotting problem by adding platelet-free plasma. And in 1944, a doctor in Argentina discovered that there were actually two different types of hemophilia, which would come to be known as hemophilia A and hemophilia B. So it seems that there was a lot of research going into hemophilia around this time. So it it just makes me wonder if Siegel perhaps didn't see the term in a magazine or a news article and decide to work the item into a story. A lot of writers of this time, and even beyond and still today, I'm sure, did that type of thing. Bill Finger and Gardner Fox and countless other writers were known to keep these uh, voluminous files of information of various things, and, and they could occasionally pluck an item out for a story. So... It just, it just definitely seems plausible to me. On the art, man, it's kind of funny because looking at these four strips in succession, you can see a progression in the art through each strip. If you look at the first strip and then the last, you would almost be able to think that they were done by two completely different artists. So either Loretta's style is, in, is evolving at this point, or 
like I said at the top of the show, Wayne Boring was pitching in. It's just it's just next to impossible to know who's contributing what at this point, or even if the credits we have that are available online are even right. Um, <laughs> just when I start to think I've got it figured out, they throw me a curveball like this. But the art in the first strip looks very much like the art in the daily storyline we looked back in. Uh, we looked at back in episode 36, which was the second part of the Superman at War trilogy. But then in each strip after that, Superman gets a little more chiseled and a little more buff, a little more square-jawed, and by the end, we look more like the art from the daily storyline from last episode. And in some ways, it's even a little more refined than that. When I do scans for the show notes, I'll try to get a panel or two from each. So check it out and compare it with the art from the daily strips and just let me know what you think. Lois Lane also looks completely different in the first strip compared to the last. And I have no idea what that's all about. In the first strip, she looks nothing at all like she has in any story to this point. I'm not even sure how to describe it, but had Taylor and Clark not called her Lois... I might have thought it was a different character altogether. By the third strip, though, she's looking more like the classic Lois again, even if one might point out she's far more sexed up in that strip than in stories to this point. On a costuming note, much like the most recent daily strips that we've, where we've gotten Superman wearing the somewhat fuller trunks, they get more streamlined as the strips go on and really look pretty much classic for the duration. It's really only in the first strip where they look baggier, but Superman only appears in one panel of that strip, and, well, he looks pretty wonky besides. Still, especially in the last two strips, we've got a very classic-looking Superman, and the fourth panel of the third strip shows Superman looking more iconic than really he ever has in any of the strips to date. You know, he's got the trunks, the big S, the shield... Uh, the the nice long cape. He looks very squinty-eyed and his hands are on his hips. It's just a classic, classic-looking Superman. And this particular panel is most certainly going in the show notes. The S on Superman's chest and cape is large and in charge in all four strips. In both spots, it's pentagonal in shape and colored as a red S on a yellow field with a yellow border. Actually, in some panels, the the feel on the chest shield looks closer to white or very, very pale pink, but I think that's more of a coloring issue than anything else. But speaking of coloring, one final art-related uh, note I wanted to point out is that in these strips, Lois Lane is a redhead. I don't think I mentioned it before, but before now, Lois's hair has been black or dark brown, depending on how you want to look at it. Uh, both in the comics and the the uh, Sunday strip. No explanation is given of, for the change in hair color, of course. If they don't explain the change in the name of the paper, <laughs> they're certainly not going to bother themselves with explaining Lois's hair color. But she's a redhead here, and it will be interesting to see how much and how consistently that carries forward and when it works its way into the comics. If you want to read this story with Lois's red hair and Superman versus Captain Caveman and the Giants. It has been reprinted, but like with the other Sunday strips, there's only one place to get it, and that is in Superman, the Sunday classics from Kitchen Sink. 
presenting the amazing Spider-Man Classics Podcast Year 2. Starring myself, John Wilson, along with Joshua Bertoni, Donovan Grant, and your favorite guest hosts of the comics podcasting community. Bringing you the classic 1960s adventures of Peter Parker, Mary Jane, Gwen Stacy, and the gang. As told by Stan Lee, John Romita, Don Heck, Jim Moody, John Buscema, and more. And to kick the year off, we're running a special episode in March with... Uh, uh, hold on, wait a second... Hey there, webheads! 12 months ago, a very special podcast came onto your iTunes feed, and to celebrate 12 months of that podcast being on your iTunes feed, we thought we'd take you on a special date to the movies, and what a movie it is! Why, it's about our very own webhead spinner Spider-Man, the first installment of Sam Raimi's Spider-Man trilogy, guest starring one of the Power Rangers. Oh boy, we're in for a good time, so strap yourself in, and here's the hosts. This isn't a way a podcast is supposed to work. Peter, you're seeing the Spider-Man Sam Raimi movie without me? Why no, Betty, I'm seeing it with all my friends, the amazing Spider-Man Classics listeners, and you're invited too. Even Liz Allen? Yes, Betty, even Liz Allen. Okay, as long as Ned can come. You know why I hate you, Leeds? Because you have a right to listen to this episode with Betty. The shadow of Spider-Man isn't standing between your earphones. Episode 28 kicks off the new year with an in-film commentary on the 2002 Sam Raimi Spider-Man film. And then we continue on in future episodes looking at the further adventures of Spider-Man, an amazing Spider-Man, spectacular Spider-Man, and every guest appearance and cameo we can find. Only at Amazing Spider-Man Classics, found on iTunes and at AmazingSpiderMan.Libsyn.com. The Superman Fan Podcast is turning over a new leaf for 2011. With the growth of Superman Podcasts in 2010 covering the Golden Age of Superman, the Bronze Age Superman, the post-crisis Superman, as well as current Superman stories, I noticed that there was not a podcast which covered the Silver Age of Superman stories. And since I began reading comic books in the early to mid-1960s, right in the middle of the Silver Age, I decided it would be a perfect opportunity for me to cover the Silver Age of Superman stories. One week I will cover the Superman family of titles, Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen, World's Finest Comics, and eventually Superman's girlfriend Lois Lane. The next week I will cover the Man of Steel's titles of Superman and Action Comics, as well as the Supergirl stories. And I will alternate episodes in this fashion through 1970 when Mark Weisinger retired. The home website is at supermanfanpodcast.mypodcast.com and expanded show notes are at supermanfanpodcast.blogspot.com. Your emails are welcome at supermanfanpodcast at gmail.com and I look forward to reading them. The Superman Fan Podcast is a member of the Superman Podcast Network, which you can find at www.fortressofbailey2.com slash supermanpodcastnetwork, where you can find all of the podcasts covering every era of the Man of Steel. Episodes are also available on iTunes. So join me each week as we fly through the time barrier and journey through the Silver Age adventures of Superman. Next episode, I'll be 
Joined once again by Charlie Niemeyer for a look at the third storyline from the Superman radio serial. When we last left our hero, Clark had raced off to the scene of a blazing inferno where a woman was trapped inside the building. Can Clark get there in time? Can Superman save the girl? And is there more to it than a simple fire? Come back next episode to find out. But that's pretty much it for this time. Once more, I want to thank John Wilson and Charlie Niemeyer and Steve Marshall for writing in, and to Michael Kaiser for the website comment, and to Steve Rogers for the iTunes review. I always like hearing from folks, so just send any comments or feedback to thrillingadventures at greatcrypton.com. Also, be sure to stop by the website at greatcrypton.com for show notes and links to past episodes. Be sure to stop by and check out the scans for this story, especially so you can see the the art stuff that I was talking about. And while you're at the site, if you want to subscribe to the show, you can do so via iTunes or the RSS feed, and links to both of those are found on the main page. And speaking of iTunes, thanks again to Steve Rogers for the latest review. I invite all the rest of you who are using iTunes to do the same. Remember, I really do want to see those number, that number of iTunes reviews hit double digits by year end, so get cracking. And it, it really, in all seriousness, it really does help people find the show easier, I think, and, and it just lets more people know about it and, and know that it's worth listening to. So if you could leave a review, I would really appreciate it. And while we're on the subject of feedback, the website also has the links to the show's Facebook and Twitter feeds, so you can follow the show on either site. I also invite you to check out my brand new other podcast that I'm co-hosting with J. David Weeder and Jeffrey Taylor, and that is Green Lantern's Light, where we are going to be talking a whole lot about Green Lantern from the mid-80s and hopefully well beyond. And last but not least, don't forget to check out both the Superman homepage and the Superman Podcast Network. Updates appear at both sites whenever there's new episodes of this show out, and both sites have tons of other Superman content focusing on pretty much every era and incarnation of the Man of Steel. So there's plenty to keep you busy while you're waiting for a new episode of this show. As always, Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster and is copyright DC Comics. So thanks again for listening to The Thrilling Adventures of Superman, and I will talk to you later. Goodbye. prehistoric block of glacier ice comes the world's first superhero, Captain Caveman. Now the constant companion to the teenagers.
Brenda, Dee Dee, and Taffy in their hilarious and sometimes scary mystery missions. Get ready for Captain Caveman and the Teen Angels. <laughs>